Hello, and welcome to 1867 and All That, episode 14, The Sydenham System. Last week, we followed Governor Charles Thompson, Le Poulet as some derisively called him, as he put together a scheme to force through the Union of the Canadas and get you know, as much consent from the governed as was reasonably possible, which meant, in Lower Canada, of course, very little. By late in the summer of 1840, he had finally managed to do it. The Upper Canadians passed a bill through their assembly and legislative councils, and while the Lower Canadians did not like the scheme, they were pacified sufficiently that the British government was able to claim some degree of consent. The British Parliament passed a bill creating a single United Province of Canada, and Le Poulet, Charles Thompson, got his reward and became Lord Sydenham. Now, that would probably have been enough for Sydenham, and that's what I'll call him from now on, by the way. You have to give the guy some reward, because like a lot of governors general, he won't be around for long. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. If it had been up to Sydenham, he could have gone home right then, happy with his accomplishments. But that's not how it worked out. Because it's one thing to create a united province of Canada, but there was the rather tricky matter of demonstrating that it could be governed. And London wanted Sydenham to take on this task too, to put together an executive to govern the colony, arrange elections that would allow for the restoration of representative government, and then meet these elected representatives and demonstrate that the new United Province of Canada could actually be governed in such a way that it was not going to lead right back to where the troubles began, with rebellion. The British government hadn't made it easy for him. In his attempt to get locals on side, Sydenham had gone out of his way to make friends and make even more promises in order to make those friends. And the final Union Bill broke a number of his promises. Sydenham had tried to limit the skewed representation that gave undue advantage to Upper Canada, but in the final scheme, the unequal representation for Lower Canada went even further than he had wanted. The final scheme gave 42 seats each to Lower Canada and Upper Canada in the new United Legislative Assembly, despite the fact that Lower Canada had almost 50% more people. Sydenham had also tried to put into the Union Bill the creation of a system of local government for Lower Canada, essentially putting the most local of all government into the hands of those who lived there. But the final bill omitted this whole scheme. Sydenham was furious and said he would resent these omissions until the end of my life. So, yeah, I, I guess he was upset. But Sydenham didn't have any choice but to go along to get along. His actual words were that the final bill will do. So he set about making sure that it would, in fact, do. And this meant building a coalition of political figures who could join his executive and represent what Sydenham saw as the moderate majority in the Canadas. What he didn't want to have was an assembly controlled by another Papineau or a Mackenzie, someone who could claim to speak on behalf of the people and against the government. Nor did he want, though, an executive that could be simply accused of being another family compact. Sydenham needed to show that 
after the rebellions, the people would really get their government back. And what's most important, that they would be satisfied. And this last part really mattered. For in the 1840s, the British saw themselves and their empire as a progressive institution. This was especially the case in their settler colonies. These were supposed to be made up of largely self-governing Britons who wanted to be part of the British Empire. For all the conflict that had grown up between various governors and the Patriot, the British thought of themselves and their empire as a system that largely worked in the interests of and with the support of locals. Now, they didn't want to always concede complete control, especially on matters that might conflict with imperial interests, but they did actually want the system to operate consensually. Sydenham called representative government the highest privilege of Britons, and he wanted to make it work in the Canadas. Lord Sydenham proclaimed the Union of the Canadas on February 10, 1841. It was an auspicious day and chosen partly because of it. Partly this was to please the Queen. February the 10th was the anniversary of Queen Victoria's marriage, so that was a nice touch. But it also happened to be the anniversary of the day in 1763 when France had ceded New France to Britain. And maybe a little less pleasantly, it was the anniversary of the day even three years earlier when Britain had suspended the Lower Canadian Constitution in the midst of the rebellion. Three years later, here they were. The rebellion had failed, and now there was union. Posters went up in Quebec and Montreal proclaiming the new union. But probably wasn't a good sign that before the sun had set on the same day, angry Lower Canadians tore down each and every one. One of the great as yet unanswered questions in early 1841 was whether Lord Sydenham's new government would be a responsible government. Would it pick up where Lord Durham had left off, taking up the recommendations of the great report which were so popular, especially in reformer circles in Upper Canada, and even among some moderate Tories too? But what was and what is this thing called responsible government? Okay, essentially, responsible government is a government that is responsible to the elected representatives of the people. To put it in terms from the Canadas at this time, it meant making the executive responsible to the assembly. In the early 1840s, there were still many different ideas about how exactly this could work in practice. But the key thing to remember is how it would be different from the colonial government which had existed in British North America up until this point. You'll remember that the governor chose an executive council. And this executive council was responsible not to the assembly, but to the governor. They could give the governor advice, and they did, but as we saw, the governor did not always have to follow the advice, let alone even ask for it. The men on this executive council, and they were all men, might also sit in the assembly as representatives of the people, but they didn't have to, and many did not. They might also sit in the upper chamber in the legislative council, but this wasn't necessary either. Essentially, the governor chose those who he saw as the most able in the colony to sit on the executive, and he sought to have the executive be broadly representative of the different interests in the colony, at least as he saw it. Reformers 
criticized the system because they claimed that the executive and in Lower Canada too, especially the Legislative Council, weren't representative. They didn't really reflect the wishes of Lower Canadians. And there was also the matter of a small clique of families and connected network of officials hoarding appointments and patronage. Responsible government would change the system in several ways. One key change would be to make these individuals on the executive responsible not to the governor, but to the assembly. As it was, the governor was the person who decided who sat on the executive, and the executive were individually responsible to him. If he wasn't happy with their performance, he could ask them to resign. Under responsible government, the power would shift downward to the assembly. The executive would hold their positions not at the choice of the governor, but at the discretion of the assembly. And if the assembly did not have confidence in the executive council, then they could declare this, and the executive would be forced to resign. And not just one member, but all of them. Remember this phrase, confidence, because it matters. And in this case, it is the executive which needed to have the confidence and trust, as it were, of the assembly. The second major change was connected to this point. Under responsible government, it would be necessary for those on the executive to also have seats in the assembly itself and to represent the government's position in the assembly. This meant that most, if not all, of the executives should, in true responsible government, also have seats in the assembly. Now, in practice then, and even until quite recently, this wasn't a hard and fast rule. You might have someone appointed, but then there would be a delay until they could be elected to a seat in the assembly. And later in Canadian history, there are cases where a senator would be appointed to cabinet, that is, you know, the modern executive, because the government needed some kind of a representative from a region where they didn't have elected supporters. But the general principle remained to sit on the executive, one really ought to also sit in the assembly. The third key change with responsible government was that what this also effectively meant was that responsible government was party government. Whichever party could control a majority in the assembly could control who got to sit on the executive. And then that executive would be answerable to the majority in the assembly. If that party and its executive, its cabinet, as it would come to be called, no longer had the assembly's confidence, that is, no longer controlled a majority of seats in the assembly, then they would have to step down and be replaced by another executive that did. And if no group could command a majority, then there would need to be a new election. For reformers, what this meant was that government for most matters could be brought within the hands of those who had the support of electors. As long as a party could win on the hustings, then they could control the executive of the government. And of course, they could control government patronage. The neat trick here is that it would also effectively bypass the legislative council, the upper chamber, You'll remember that the big push of the Patriot for years in the 92 resolutions and before was to make the Legislative Council elected, and many still did want this. But by taking control of the executive and making it responsible to the Assembly, responsible government did a quick runaround the Legislative Council and made it much less important. 
the best part of the whole thing, the piece de résistance, was that it was a politically safe demand. You could reasonably claim that in asking for responsible government, you were demanding reform, yes, but not radical reform, just a kind of loyal reform. By demanding responsible government, all reformers really wanted was to have in the Canadas the kind of government already enjoyed in England itself. Now, in actual fact, this idea of responsible government was only just then being worked out in England too, but certainly the idea of responsible government worked within the general parameters of how parliamentary government was supposed to work. It still maintained the loyal idea of a balanced constitution and reformers could still justifiably claim that they were only asking for good British government. This wasn't some newfangled addition or change. It wasn't a Republican alteration. It was simply British constitutional government as it was supposed to work. So, all good then, right? Well, not quite. The real problem was that even while responsible government of this kind, or party or cabinet government as others called it, was accepted in Britain, there were quite a few people who were convinced that it just couldn't work in a colony. It was one thing for the British cabinet to be responsible to the House of Commons and to be forced to resign if they no longer had the confidence of the House. In that case, although they were Her Majesty's advisors, their real responsibility was held by the House. But in a colony, the executive, and what's more, the governor, needed to also be responsible to the empire, to London. But how could the executive be responsible both to London and to the colonial assembly? For many British thinkers, the answer was simple. It couldn't. A government could not be responsible both to instructions from London and to a colonial assembly. It just couldn't work. Or at least that had been the accepted wisdom. The question was, did this still hold after the rebellions and after the Durham report and in the new United Province of Canada? Lord John Russell, he of the Ten Resolutions, was still in place to give his own firm instructions to Lord Sydenham. And his answer was still, no way. He knew that reformers continued to push for exactly this reform, and so he told Sydenham in no uncertain terms that responsible government must be refused. Yes, in the United Kingdom, ministers wielded the power of the crown and were answerable to the house, but the same could not be done in a colony. If a governor, and really, what's more, the governor's executive was to be answerable to the assembly, then they would not be answerable to the crown and its representatives in Britain. They would, in effect, become an independent sovereign. Russell warned Sydenham that some reformers were bound to ask for partial responsible government. Couldn't we just have it in local affairs that wouldn't affect the imperial connection? But Russell was having none of that either. He reminded Sydenham that the assembly in Lower Canada only a few years earlier had been controlled by Papineau and the Patriot. If there had been local responsible government then, there would have been a whole slew of instances where the Patriot would have acted in ways that went against the interests and honour of Great Britain, even in their colonial domestic matters. 
And of course, the British party in Lower Canada would have complained to the British Parliament about these actions. And then the imperial government would have been stuck. If the empire ceded responsible government, what were they to do? They would have to go along with their so-called responsible governments in the colonies. So, to avoid this possibility, responsible government could not be granted. For the moment at least, the official position from London was no responsible government, despite the hoo-ha generated by Durham's report. But that didn't mean that government was to be autocratic, and Russell instructed Sydenham that by all means, the imperial government had no intention of interfering with the major interests of the colony's leading characters who wished the progress of the colony. The representatives' assemblies should be given all leeway in measures of reform and improvement. Just not responsible government. So, with this little bit of advice and limitation in his back pocket, Lord Sydenham set about creating a government that would have the support of those representative assemblies, even if ultimately he wasn't committed to giving them the final say. The Sydenham system, as it came to be called, looked a bit like the Sir Francis Bond head system. That is, to put the governor in the position of almost prime minister, who gathered around him everyone who professed loyalty. But the difference was that while Head had pushed for a strident loyalist tent, Sydenham wanted a coalition of all those he called moderates, reasonable people of the middle who were committed to compromise and progress and the reconstruction of the colony. Sydenham wanted to be seen as the governor of just about everyone. Whether everyone wanted to be governed by him or these kind of people remained to be seen. Before moving to call elections for the new United Province, he invited various prominent figures to sit on the executive to create his own government. In Upper Canada, he turned his back on the family compact Tories who had so often led government in the past and instead tried to find moderate figures who would support Sydenham himself. And he was nothing if not ambitious. He invited Robert Baldwin, the promoter of responsible government, to be Solicitor General. What better way to show Sydenham's status as a true reformer and a believer in the general idea, even if maybe not the precise practice, of responsible government? Perhaps what's most amazing, Baldwin accepted. Sydenham also invited an ambitious and promising young Lower Canadian reformer named Louis Hippolyte Lafontaine to be Solicitor General for Canada East, as Lower Canada was now supposed to be called in the new province of Canada. We're going to get to know a lot more about Lafontaine next week, so for now I'll just leave it at that. Uh, just to say Lafontaine rejected the offer. The Union was still so unpopular in Lower Canada that to have accepted a position on the executive would have branded him a traitor, or as it was called in Lower Canada, a vendu, a sellout. In fact, Sydenham found it almost impossible to bring in French Canadians. But without another alternative, he moved ahead regardless. He would just have to see how things turned out in the elections. And so, the governor issued the writs for elections to fill seats in the new assembly. The elections would take place over several weeks in late March and early April of 1841. Representative government was coming back to the Canadas, and so too was the riotous exuberance 
aka violence, of Canadian elections. Sydenham wanted to leave little to chance, and he ran what some historians have called perhaps the most corrupt election campaign of this era, and that is saying a lot. Sydenham was of course the governor, but he also acted as a kind of prime minister, and even better as chief returning officer and as commander-in-chief of the armed forces, and of course as head of the civil service. And he was determined to surreptitiously and sometimes openly use all of these positions to ensure that his candidates won. He toured Upper Canada on a regal visit, and in each area his own hand-picked candidate appeared alongside the governor, basking in the reflected glory of his visit. When the time came to choose local returning officers, he selected those people who were friendly to his candidates. When trouble stirred in ridings across the province, it was up to Sydenham to decide when and where to send in troops, and he was happy to send them in where he thought they would help the chances of his candidates, and in situations where it would not have helped, the troops stayed home or were somehow mysteriously delayed. Sydenham also made it clear to government appointees, those in the kind of civil service, that they ought to support the government by voting for Sydenham's candidates. And remember, these are all elections with an open ballot where you had to shout out who you were voting for. Sydenham set the example right at the start in Hamilton. In that city, Sydenham set up his own candidate, the man he wanted to lead his government in the assembly, James Harrison, against Alan McNabb. Remember McNabb, he was the foe of William Lyon Mackenzie who had come to the rescue of Toronto in the rebellion and who had also dashed off right after to the London region to put down an uprising in that area. Well, this was his reward. Sydenham put up his star candidate against him. But when a clerk of the peace in Hamilton dared to vote for McNabb, he was fired from his position the very next day. This would set the example for other civil servants across the colony. Now, in the case of, of Hamilton, it didn't work. McNabb won the election, and Sydenham found another riding to elect Harrison. But there were many ridings where the votes of office holders would push up the numbers of Sydenham supporters, especially because in Upper Canada, these office holders would quite possibly have supported family compact candidates normally. This was one way of winning through to a moderate majority, that's for sure. And it definitely worked in Upper Canada. When the elections were finished, Sydenham could count on the support of at least 26 of the 42 representatives in that part of the colony, and perhaps even the support of nine others depending on the issue. In these days, party discipline and political parties themselves were very loosely defined, and so this was quite a victory. In Lower Canada, Sydenham could use many of the same ploys, but the situation was more complex. All sides had reason to feel resentful. For Loyalists, there was the dirty matter of the rebellion itself, of treason and the traitors, the rebel supporters who had participated in the rebellion, but had either not been convicted or had been pardoned or who had simply not supported it radically enough to have entangled themselves with the law. These people were still around and were now running for office to return to the assembly. 
to the British in Lower Canada, this seemed like the most heinous kind of perverse injustice they could imagine. And so, armored with their own sense of who was and who wasn't loyal, they could engage in any number of dirty tricks and violence, all the while thinking that they were on the right side of history. But of course, for others in Lower Canada, many French Canadians and other former Patriot supporters, there was the memory of rebellion. The constitution had been suspended in Lower Canada. Habeas corpus had been revoked. There had been the burnings, Le Vieux Brûlé Colborne and his lieutenants, some of whom were now running for office. For months, the French papers had been filled with stories of the sorry plight of the exiles, those rebels who had been sent across the world to Van Diemen's land. And then there was the injustice of Union itself, this political monstrosity which had been foisted upon lower Canadians without their consent. The strongest and loudest voices throughout the whole campaign focused on this final point, on the need to reject Union itself. In Lower Canada, Sydenham relied especially on decisions about where to place the polls. He focused on those ridings with significant English-speaking populations and placed the polls where electors would have to travel to vote in those English-speaking areas. The first election at Beauharnois, just west of Montreal, set the example. The area was predominantly French, but the poll was set in the one English-speaking county in the riding. It didn't hurt that the returning officer was also the manager of Sydenham's candidate. According to some, the returning officer disallowed the vote of any elector who couldn't also speak English. Troops were called out to ostensibly keep the peace around the polls, but who also allegedly kept away French-speaking voters. And then, the returning officer closed the poll after only two days even though in the last election, the poll had been kept open for several weeks. Perhaps, not surprisingly, Sydenham's candidate won. The same tactics were employed across the province, and a great deal of violence resulted. Riots killed at least five people across Lower Canada, injuring many more. At the end of all of this, somehow Lord Sydenham came out with the support from roughly half of the members elected to the Assembly from Lower Canada, it was an astounding victory given the demographics of the area and the popular feeling. All of this meant that Sydenham had notched up another victory, however tarnished it could seem to some. His moderate reforming candidates who stood for some general support of responsible government, though not really responsible government in full, had won a majority of seats in the new assembly. So, although Russell had told Sydenham he was not to concede to responsible government, Sydenham could still claim to represent a majority in the assembly, which is one of the key features, of course, of responsible government. He would write that he had created a whole new system of governing the province, something he thought that could be used again and again by future governors. But that very much remained to be seen. How long could the Sydenham system remain? And how long could you go on claiming to have responsible government, sort of, kind of, before someone came along and demanded that this be tested in practice? OK, 
Okay, thanks for listening this week. Uh, I don't know about you, but I've been listening to a lot of podcasts lately uh, as I do all the housework that comes with having four children in a pandemic uh, with the schools shut. So plenty of reason for diversion. Uh, If you like what you're hearing, of course, please do subscribe and leave a five-star review. Why not also tell a friend? If you like it, it's entirely possible you know someone else who might like it too. Over the rest of this season one, we're going to spend a great deal of time talking about this thing called responsible government. So I'm glad we got to lay out here what it means and how it first came to be talked about in the candidates. Next week, we find out what happens when Lord Sydenham is faced with a demand that he affirm support for responsible government. And we also delve into one of the great bromances of Canadian history between Francis Hinks, Robert Baldwin, and Louis Lafontaine. 1867 and all that is created, written, and narrated by me, Christopher Dummett. And the sound engineering is done by Rob Viscardis of Paradigm Pictures with the generous support of Trent Online at Trent University. Until next time, remember, there's a lot of all that to 1867 and all that.